congregation of our Lord and Saviour, how do you know if what you're about to hear is going to be the truth? I mean, it's possible, is it not, that I could speak some fable or some fantasy to you this morning, some myth, perhaps I could conjecture about some things or speculate about some matter. Yes, there is some comfort in the elder's handshake, which we have at the end of the service. The eldership have not approved of the service, then you'll notice I would trust that the elder won't shake my hand at the end. If it's really bad, we might even see the elders drag me out of the pulpit. And they're all pretty large guys, so that wouldn't be too difficult. So you have some level of confidence, perhaps. But seriously, how do you know that what is taught in this church is actually the truth? I'm not talking only about the pulpit, but in the Bible studies that take place regularly in the church, the youth group, the catechism lessons, and other avenues of ministry. I mean, it's what you're hearing really true. See, John is writing here in the passage we've looked at and in this letter to a group of Christians who have heard the truth of the gospel. They've also heard some, from some false teachers as well. And these instructors that they've heard from were once part of the church, but they've now departed, they've gone. Now in our church here, in the Reformed Church, we have specifically tasked the elders, and I quote from our form, to be faithful watchmen over the house of God, ensuring that pure doctrine and godly living are maintained. However, it's not only the eldership in the church who are to be in the process of checking and testing to see if what the church is hearing is true. That's going to bring us to our first point this morning, testing the teachers testing the teachers. Now let's just think about uh, the medical profession for a moment, thinking about doctors and nurses. They pass many theory and practical tests before they're let loose on patients. And in Greek literature, this word test that we find in the Bible here in the first verse uh, is used or was used of examining medical candidates to make sure that they knew what they were doing. I mean, it's critical and crucial, isn't it, that if you're going to be Uh, subject to someone's care as a medical professional that they know what they're doing. It was in May this year that uh, it was reported in Australia that a doctor with no qualifications, working on a stolen identity, had treated patients in the state hospitals for 10 years. Who would want an unregistered nurse administering medication? Who'd want an untested doctor making a life-critical diagnosis? And who'd want an incompetent surgeon operating on them? Surely none of us. See, the message of the Bible is more critical than the scalpel in a surgeon's hand in an operating theatre. This word must be handled so carefully and accurately because it is the sword of the Spirit. We read in Hebrews 4, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Who would want to have such a tool, such an instrument wielded upon their very soul if the person wielding it was actually after their death rather than their life? And so that's why John writes seriously to the Christians in verse 1. Beloved, he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
John's just been writing about the Holy Spirit who indwells and abides in those who are in Christ. He then refers to these spirits which are to be tested. And he's using the word spirit to refer there to the person who is inspired by some spiritual power. We read in Ezekiel of similar language where the false prophets were following their own spirit. We read in Ephesians 6 how there are only two categories of spiritual power, that which comes from God and that which comes from the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual teaching, therefore, is either divine or diabolical. It's from the devil or from God. We know from the Old Testament that false prophets spoke and continued to speak lies until Christ came. Jesus, during his Sermon on the Mount, warned his disciples, beware of false prophets, he said, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's those false prophets, false teachers that John's referring to in our text. He uses a particular form of the verb when he says they've gone out. He's indicating that they have arisen from within the church, within the covenant community. They've gone out and they will continue to go out in the future. And that's exactly what's happened if you look at the history of the church. Think about the Roman Catholic Church for a moment. Salvation, they teach, is by faith and works. The merits of Mary and the saints can be applied to other people. The Lord's Supper elements actually become the real, physical body and blood of Christ, they teach. Sacred church tradition is equal in authority to Scripture. Think about the teaching of Jacobus Arminius at the time of the Protestant Reformation, who taught, amongst other things, that Christians can lose their salvation if they actively reject the Holy Spirit's influence. John uses this word test, and it was used in the ancient word world as uh, the word for testing the authenticity of a metal, a precious metal, especially gold and silver coins. This method of assaying a metal, it heats the metal up to melting point and then scrapes off the impurities. And it's interesting, over the last two and a half thousand years, this process has changed very little, and now people can determine between to one part in 10,000 the impurities in gold. But how do you test a teacher to see whether they're speaking God's truth? You can't really heat them up to melting point. That's not going to work. John helps us in verse 2 and 3. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world. John says the test is whether a teacher, a preacher, will will teach that Christ came in the flesh, was incarnate. And if he or she doesn't teach that, then they are in opposition to Christ. Now, there's a reason why John is identifying this particular doctrinal truth. It's because at that time, There were people teaching that Jesus just seemed to be, appeared to be human, and that his death was not really a a real death at Calvary. Again, John uses, interestingly, this word that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and he uses it in such a way that it indicates that Jesus has come in the flesh and still remains in the flesh. Jesus Christ is still a man in flesh. He remains fully God and fully man. 
And so this doctrine, this teaching of the incarnation of Christ was and is and remains an essential key doctrine and teaching of the truth. However, today in our world, it's not this teaching perhaps which is as prevalent or this teaching against the incarnation as it was in the time that John wrote. There are other heresies that are taught in the church or churches. For example, that of annihilationism, the idea that people cease to exist at some point in the future rather than the biblical doctrine that God has a place where people continue to exist in eternal punishment of separation from God. Some churches and Christians teach an evolutionary understanding of the origin of man. Some churches embrace and teach same-sex unions. The test for the teaching of the church is as it has always been. The truth is vital. Truthful teachers are those who teach what the Bible says, no more, no less, even if it's not what people want to hear. So what comprehensive test can God's people apply to make sure that what they are hearing is true? That's what we're going to look at in our second point, conquering children. John writes here at the beginning in uh, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Again, this word overcome has that same idea of, of overcoming, of conquering, and continuing to overcome, continuing to conquer it. It has the idea of vanquishing or subduing enemies in battle, of gaining superiority, of being victorious. Are we then to, to be conducting some kind of Christian jihad, some kind of warfare? Absolutely not. The church, the Christians have never been taught to engage in a physical warfare for the purpose of conquering people so that they would be converted to Christ. It's sad and it's true that there are some very dark blemishes on the history of the Christian church. Think about the Crusades of the 11th, 12th and 13th centuries promoted by the medieval church. Think about the Roman Catholic Inquisitions that tortured and killed many for perceived breaches of orthodoxy. There was the heretic Michael Servetus who was executed in Geneva in which Calvin, John Calvin, was involved. The warfare that you and I are to be involved in is entirely spiritual when it comes to the gospel. Paul writes, as we read earlier, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. But if we're not going to take up physical weapons, how can little children like us, and that's how John refers to us, how can we combat the dangerous wolves in sheep's clothing that Christ warned us about? John says that he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. God dwells within his people, both individually and corporately together. And the God who dwells within us by his Holy Spirit is greater than Satan. John describes in his gospel as the ruler of this world. And that's why Paul writes about us as being more than conquerors, because we have this power of God. We know that Christ has been victorious over Satan at the cross of Calvary. And in terms of the gospel promise that God first brought in Genesis 3.15, Christ has bruised the head of the devil. 
And so we must remember and know that we are dealing with a conquered enemy, Satan. And that God is with us by his Holy Spirit and he is more powerful. And you see, it is the Holy Spirit within who enables us to discern false teaching. Jesus promised this when he promised the sending of the Holy Spirit, saying he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. God has given us the power, you see, to overcome the lies and the deception of false teachers by giving us the spirit of truth to rightly understand his word. Of course, that's exactly what the Christians in Berea did. And we read about that in Acts chapter 17. They received the word with all eagerness. They were listening. They were reading, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so let me encourage you when you read your Bible. When you listen to preaching and teaching. When you hear sermons online. When you read Christian literature. When you follow theological debates to compare what you are hearing against this word of God. Trusting that if you do so diligently and carefully, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. In this way, we are called to test the teachers both within the world and outside. We become conquering children as we do so. And thirdly, a listening world. That's our third point. Well, as many of you know, I love the mountains. I love being in the mountains. I love the fresh air. I love the panoramic views. I love the beauty of God's creation. But I also love the quiet. I love the lack of human sound. Occasionally I'm there and some group of trampers will come up and they'll have some, their iPhones turned on loud and all of a sudden that tranquility, that serenity is shattered. It's a noisy world at times even up in the mountains. Many voices, many ideas that we hear any viewpoints clamoring for our attention. And in this postmodern age, there are so many truths that are widely accepted. You can believe anything as long as you don't claim it to be absolutely true, many people would say today. Everything is to be accepted and tolerated except the truth of God. That's the world we live in. We are called to speak into a listening world, something which is offensive. And that is the gospel. Paul describes it as uh, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. The gospel of Christ is this message: that the Son of Man became a ma- Son of God became a man. He lived a perfect life on this earth. He suffered as he did good to others. Then he died this excruciating death as as the only truly innocent man who has ever lived. And he did so not for himself, but for others dying in their place so that they might not only have life, but also live in God's favor forever as his beloved children. And this message is offensive to the world. It's offensive for a variety of reasons. It's offensive because it's exclusive. Jesus Christ is the only way. Other religions are therefore false. That's offensive in a politically correct world of tolerance. To be right with God, you and I and everybody else must first accept that we have rebelled against him. 
We must come to him and admit that. We must admit that we have offended him and need his forgiveness and help. There is no other way to be right with God other than through this method, this process, this pattern of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's an offensive message to a proud and self-reliant, unbelieving world. To be at peace with God means a person loves God, loves his son Jesus Christ and believes his word, believes that the Bible is true and the only rule for faith and life. And that's offensive that people in the 21st century would stand up and say, this old book, this old message is actually true. From cover to cover, word to word, everything about it. It's an unpalatable truth to the world. And the world wants to hear a different message. And it's always been that way. And so false prophets... False teachers have always been popular. Those who will tell people what they want to hear. It's all good. It's all fine. What you're doing, whatever it is, is totally acceptable. As long as you're not hurting other people too much. False prophets in the time of Jeremiah were preaching that everything was fine when it wasn't. God said they've healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. These warnings are throughout the scripture. We find them in the New Testament very clearly in Second Timothy, where Paul writes, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Isn't that so true? Isn't that what we've seen around us? Now, one of the reasons I'm passionate about preaching the Word of God, committed to the training of men for the ministry of proclaiming God's Word, and willing to be used as an instrument in God's hand for the equipping of the saints for works of service in the church for building up the body of Christ is that the church today, as she always has, needs a clear voice, a voice of truth into a world which is murky and dark and filled with error. John writes at the close of our passage of the false teachers, he says they're from the world. And when he's using the word world there, he's talking about this unbelieving system of rebellion against God. They speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, he says. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now John is using the word we there, referring to himself and the other apostles. How a person receives this apostolic teaching, this message of the gospel, the way in which they respond indicates whether or not they are a child of God. The word listen means not merely hearing audibly what I'm saying and what is being said in your ears, but responding to it and believing it in your heart. Now these verses do not mean that as Christians, whatever we say, if someone doesn't listen to us, it means they're not from God. That would be arrogance. 
We're not infallible speakers of the word or the truth. However, when we speak the truth, when we reflect and echo that apostolic message of Christ and Him crucified, then the response of people to what we say indicates how they stand before God. True teaching is always received with joy and gladness by those who know God. We actually sang about that in Psalm 119 before. In your commandments make me walk, for in your law my joy shall be. God's true truth is is irresistibly attractive to God's children. Jesus put the same thing a different way when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So what is our task, brothers and sisters, in the church? You'll see it on the front of your bulletin. I haven't got a copy here. But it goes like this. And it's a summary of uh, scriptural teaching to make and equip disciples of Jesus our Savior who joyfully serve and glorify God. We are to be truthful teachers, not just the minister who stands in the pulpit, not just the elders who might teach a Bible study, not just the Bible study leaders, but all Christians, we are to be truthful teachers before a listening world, echoing, repeating, proclaiming the voice of Christ in his word to the world around us. And John's gospel indicates what we already, sorry, John's letter indicates what we already know to be true. Some will listen to us and some will not. That's clear. And their response will indicate their standing before God if we faithfully speak the truth. So what about you this morning? I have sought as much as I am able to faithfully speak the truth to you today, not fable, not fantasy, not speculation, not conjecture. Have you listened? How will you respond today to this message? The Son of God became a man. Whilst remaining God, he lived on this earth and lived a perfect life, suffering as he did so. And he died an excruciating death, not for himself, but in place of others. So that rebels like you and me, sinners, can live rightly before God forever. That's the message. Your response to that message this morning, as at other times when you hear it, determines your standing before God. There is nothing more serious than this. Nothing more critical. Scalpel blade of the word cuts to the heart. And so, brothers and sisters, are you committed to testing the teaching that you hear? In the church, in your home, school or university, in the workplace, in the world, when you turn on the radio or go on the internet? Will you check what you hear against this word as it is accompanied by God's Spirit? And are you resolved along with myself to speak the truth into this noisy world, world of competing voices, 
confident that God will use your voice as you speak the truth as a means of conveying truthful teaching to others. Amen.